You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law Corporation, and today... We do not have our co-hostist with the mostest, but in the event that he actually listens to our podcast, I did want to give Paul Doroshenko a quick shout out just to say happy lawyer anniversary and happy birthday. Um, For those who don't know, uh, this year was Paul's 20 year anniversary of being a lawyer. So that's like a huge achievement. Uh, 20 years and not yet disbarred. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, No, 20 years and still keeping at it and still changing the landscape of justice in Canada is is a huge accomplishment. And also, his birthday was yesterday. So happy birthday, Paul. Um, Big week for you. In other news, I did promise last week that we would have uh, one of our most popular podcast guests back, uh, Eric McGracken, uh, to talk about his um, practice, the CRT, and the recent announcement by ICBC that Paul and I discussed just the basic statistics of uh, this week. And Eric's going to give us a very detailed analysis of why this is all a bunch of pivoting and controlling the message nonsense that isn't actually accurate. Um, And I'm very looking forward to sharing our discussion with you. Eric McGracken is the author of the BC Injury Law blog, bc-injury-law.com. It is the most uh, well-read, award-winning injury law blog uh, out there. Um, And I know from many personal injury lawyers that are friends and colleagues of mine that basically their day starts with reading Eric's blog to see what else he's put on there. So he's an incredibly well-respected, popular litigator, and we are so privileged to have him join us this often on the podcast. So without further ado, here is Eric McGracken. Thank you again to Eric McGracken joining us back on the podcast. Eric, you will be surprised. Maybe not surprised. You shouldn't be surprised. Our most popular episodes are the ones where you are the guest. Oh, that's great to hear, Kyla. <laughs> I am so, pleasantly surprised because this is, you know, it's not always the most compelling stuff we talk about. But Oh, I think a lot of people, you know, this, the stuff that we talk about is the stuff that affects every road user in British Columbia inevitably because we're all paying for insurance. Oh, good. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll try to keep it interesting. <laughs> you always do. Um, I noticed a very uh, interesting series of tweets by you um, last week, and then it led to an article where uh, your face was the uh, cover page in the Vancouver Sun about the Civil Resolution Tribunal in British Columbia and very interesting numbers coming out of that tribunal. Yeah. There was my big old Instagram profile pic <laughs> all over, all over the Vancouver Sun. Uh, I guess I need to invest in a professional photo shoot one of these days. Me and my golf shirt in my backyard maybe doesn't cut it, but um, yeah, this the civil tribunal. I have to tell you, I haven't paid too much attention to it yet. The the government's trying to force 
all ICBC claims through this tribunal eventually, but the lion's share of my practice right now predates those legal changes, and so I'm still taking cases through the BC Supreme Court. Uh, but I decided just to take a peek at how that civil tribunal is coming along when it comes to ICBC cases, because I know my practice going to uh, flirt up with that eventually. And I, you know, I didn't like what I saw. I, I heard the rumor. Somebody told me that when ICBC goes to this tribunal, they're winning every single time, and I didn't believe it. That just sounded like nonsense to me. And so I just did a quick search. I. I went to the CRT website and I pulled up all cases where ICBC was a named litigant in 2020 and it turns out they won every single one of those cases. There was case after case after case being dismissed where people had an ICBC dispute. And so I put that I put that out there for the world to sort of comment on and it even caught the CRT's attention and they quickly corrected me that there was one case where ICBC lost Justice. in 2020, and, <laughs> and you know, I'm not sure that does much to change the statistics. It goes from 100% to about 97%, but that case barely didn't make it on my radar because ICBC wasn't a named litigant. It just happened to be an ICBC dispute, but they weren't named as a party, so I didn't catch it. But those numbers are pretty overwhelming in favor of uh, one party, and I you know, I really hope that trend doesn't continue because I know in ICBC cases and BC Supreme Court, they're not batting a thousand. They don't enjoy success anywhere nearly along those lines. And when when I sort of quickly go through those decisions, um, you know, you can't I can't make a comment on it overall. E each case needs to be sort of analyzed on why it was dismissed, and sometimes it was for procedural reasons or others, but other times it seems like adjudicators are giving a lot of de deference to ICBC adjuster opinions on crashes as opposed to really delving through the competing evidence that they're presented and coming up with their decisions. So anyways, I just didn't like what I saw. I thought those numbers were worth a quick soundbite on the internet, and I'm glad the media gave it a bit of attention as well. Do you think part of the problem is how restrictive the civil resolution tribunal rules are as far as, like, evidence that you can adduce, the process, and your ability to be represented by counsel? Yeah, and, well, you know, not having counsel is really tough, because if you look at these cases, you have unrepresented people on the one side going up against an institutional litigant. So ICBC, even though most of these complaints have to do with fault for a car crash, one driver versus the other. What you end up having is one driver against an adjuster making submissions on behalf of the other driver. So, so one party is, I'll call it at least quasi-represented, even though it's not by a lawyer, versus somebody else who probably has no experience with the CRT or any of their rules. So I don't know that, that you have the fairest... Um, matchup going in. Well, and you have to assume that the adjusters, when, you know, when all these changes came into force and effect, they didn't just go blindly into the CRTC, or CRT hearings, CRTC, <laughs> the CRT hearings, they, they were probably trained by ICBC, had lawyers come in and explain, you know, here's how you, you know, put together a good case. Yeah, no, I imagine they did have extensive training. I, you know, I have no first-hand knowledge of it, but I can't imagine ICBC didn't train their staff for the new job they were expected to do. And the CRT, when you know, when they put in motor vehicle cases, they basically said, I think it was a 
Attorney General Eby outright said during question period that, yeah, the intention is to have adjusters go in there against unrepresented people. You know, that, that never sat well with me. I always thought that was a strange way to design a tribunal where you're hoping the lay public goes up against uh, an institutional litigant. It, it just doesn't seem like the fairest process coming in the door. But again, ultimately, I just didn't like the numbers. I didn't like the fact that it was 97% of the time these claims are being dismissed. So... Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm with you on that, because even if you have like 97% of claims being dismissed completely legitimately, um, you know, and I'm not suggesting, of course, any impropriety on the part of the civil resolution tribunal adjudicators, but like if that were the case, if you were in a courtroom even where 97% of cases in a criminal trial resulted in a guilty verdict and it was all proper and every verdict was upheld on appeal, the perception as a member of the public looking at the administration of justice there would say this isn't fair. This system can't be fair because you wouldn't expect to see it heavily weighted in favor of one side every single time. And I think per- public perception is a huge issue here. Yeah, it, you know, it really is. And, and one litigant did raise the perception of a bias claim and the CRT just quickly dismissed it, basically said, no, we're fine. Uh, but but if these kinds of statistics continue, it does deserve scrutiny, not just for the confidence of the public, but just to find out whether everything is being conducted as well and objectively and impartially as it can be. And like you, I'll be careful. I'm not going to say anything disparaging. I'm not going to come here and use this platform to say the CRT is biased or it's somehow rigged. I don't, you know, I, you know, I wouldn't use that kind of language. I only put out those results. And those results are different, vastly different from ICBC's success rate in the BC Supreme Court. And and so just to sort of pick up on your earlier question to me, part of it might be not having counsel there. Part of it might be the complexity of the process where the CRT has jurisdiction uh, various different ways over these claims. And I think there's some litigant confusion about that. And you know, I'm not sure what other factors might be might be going into it, but but you're right. I think there's going to be a lack of confidence as fighting ICBC results in a you know 97% loss rate to the public. Well, when you talk about you know confusion about what the the CRT has has jurisdiction over, that's what I got the impression about in the story written by Ian Mulgrew was. You know, the CRT's response to to this was, well, a lot of these people who were not successful had their claims dismissed because they were asking for determinations of fault or things that the CRT can't can't make a decision about and they need to be addressed in Supreme Court, which to me is just highlighting a problem with the process of not allowing people to have adequate legal representation. If somebody came to you and said, Eric, I want to hire you to represent me at the CRT, assuming you were allowed to, and I need you to to get them to make a determination that I wasn't at fault for the accident or to reapportion the fault, you'd give them advice on, you know, whether that was within the jurisdiction of the court or whether that was in the jurisdiction of the tribunal and how to bring that application, and you'd do it the proper way. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, that's what, you know, that's what lawyers do is we legally refine it and present matters as best as possible. And when I go through those cases, leaving aside like outright jurisdictional issues where people are claiming for relief, the CRT has no uh, ability to to grant even if they wanted to, I do see the inexperience of people advancing some of these cases. The, The vast majority of them are fault disputes for car crashes. 
And the easiest way to go about doing that is you sue the other motorist. You allege negligence and you try to make out some wrongdoing. And then you have that usual debate of, okay, is the defendant negligent and is the plaintiff contributorily negligent? And then you duke it out. But a lot of people are going to the CRT after a car crash with a fault assessment they're not happy with, and they say, ICBC, you guys are negligent as my insurance company. You didn't do a great job investigating this crash. You should have done more. And the CRT responds to that saying, you know what? As an insurance company, they don't really have a high standard to uh, you know, move heaven and earth when investigating a car crash. There's really not much that's expected of them. And the whole uh, um you know, point of the inquiry almost gets deviated to, oh, okay, is ICBC being reasonable or not here? Not whether they're right or wrong, but did they do enough before they came up to their decision? And that's that's really not what litigants should be focusing on. They should be focusing on the conduct of the other motorist, saying what they did wrong, and starting from fresh, who cares what ICBC said mm-hmm. about who's at fault or not? They weren't there. They're not witnesses to the crash. They're decision is basically opinion evidence, and it's inadmissible opinion evidence. So the focus should never even start there. I don't care what ICBC says. I care about what the parties to the crash have to say. I care what the witnesses to the crash have to say, and I care about any video or any other evidence that might exist. And part of that just speaks to the inexperience of people self-representing, and I'm not being disparaging. It's a tough thing you know, to go through a process like this if you're not familiar with it, but people, people should at the very least get a quick free legal consult, consultation before starting even something as relatively straightforward as the CRT process just to make sure they're putting their best foot forward. Do you think that there's a lot of reluctance among um, lawyers in giving um, injured people who are wanting to use the, the CRT's sort of tribunal uh, free legal advice because... It's not going to result in in you know them being retained and and a file that they're going to get to collect on. I always look at it in terms of goodwill. So I give free consultations all day long. It seems like I, I field calls left and right and uh, give people the same advice I'd give them as if they were my client in terms of what their legal remedies are and what the pros and cons are of some of this. And a lot of people do choose to take that advice and then self-represent, and that's fine. A lot of them welcome the advice, and they do come back down the road if they run into problems or if they have something more serious that they need assistance with. So I'm never uh, shy about giving free legal consultations. Uh, I can't speak for the profession at large. I imagine there's lots of other lawyers out there like me that are uh, fairly generous with their time in terms of you know, pointing people in the right direction. And I'm sure there's some... Uh, on the other end of the spectrum that just say, look, if I can't bill, I want to use my time differently. And and I understand that as well. It's a job. (laughs) But you phone around, you'll find somebody willing to help you out. Yeah, and I think, you know, part of, uh, I suspect that it's less uh, that lawyers aren't willing to give the advice as people don't think lawyers are willing to give the advice. And so they don't make the phone call. They think, well, you know, I'm not going to hire a lawyer. I can't afford a lawyer. I'm not allowed a lawyer, so I shouldn't phone. Yeah, I think you're right. Or there's, you know, there's just a perception. Lawyers are expensive. I'm going to get a big bill about this. I don't want to, you know, I don't know how to go about doing it. And, um, you know, that's a shame. But but the personal injury bar, the the plaintiff contingency bar particularly, we're built on giving people initial free consultations. That's just part and parcel of this industry. And people should be aware of that. So if you do have a personal injury matter, phone around, get a free opinion, get several free opinions if you want, because there's lots of good lawyers out there willing to give some of their time to 
you know, point folks in the right direction, even if it's not the kind of a case the lawyers could bill on. Now, would you also accept, like, limited retainers from people who are uh, dealing with the CRT to ghostwrite submissions for them or to coach them in advance? Like, is that something that you would do? Or I, I, I generally don't, but again, on the on the pro bono side is I do give a fair amount of my time helping people um, advocate for themselves. So I, I really don't mind pointing people in the right direction, but I won't go so far as to say, okay, now you know, pay me $1,000 for a few hours of my time and I'll draft some limited documents for you and then shake your hand and say, good luck. <laughs> I'm either, I'm either going to get fully involved or I won't, but on cases where I'm not properly retained, I, you know, I don't mind helping out as best as I can in those circumstances without getting on the record and drafting documents for folks. From what you've seen looking at these cases, is there are there changes that you've identified that you would make to the system that would be easy enough for government to, government to make, even, even by legislative amendment or changing regulations, to try and make it appear to be more balanced? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll tell you the one change I would like to see. I would like the CRT to be voluntary, not mandatory. I've long said this. The government uh, designs the CRT, and in many ways it's something that that people should welcome. It's a different route to justice. It's supposedly quicker and cheaper and far more flexible than, you know, than a brick-and-mortar sort of a courthouse. And in this pandemic, I think a lot of us could see the upside of that type of a, you know, that type of an institution to adjudicate claims. But if it's truly a better mousetrap, make it optional, and people will flock to the CRT over traditional court if it is a better uh, you know, avenue to justice. But when I see a 97% success rate for a litigant, I um, you know, duke it out with quite often, I'm not inclined to choose that as, as an avenue. And if the numbers were different, maybe I would. Maybe I'd you know, tell some of my clients that the CRT is a fine option and we should take advantage of it. But where it's mandatory, I just don't like that. I, I think mm-hmm. the resources ought to be going to make our courts more adaptable and more technology friendly and whatever shortcomings they say exist and be it the BC Provincial Court or the BC Supreme Court, put the resources there to improve those systems instead of building yet another one to the detriment of the others. So so I really hope uh, that the government could make any claims that go to the CRT as optional and that litigants could go to traditional court as well. And I think You'll see the results eventually. Like if one is truly superior to the others, people are going to flock there. I would go there. I have nothing against the idea behind the CRT. If, if I'm satisfied that my clients are going to have a fair hearing there and there's going to be due process and witnesses will be given an opportunity to be heard and proper evidence will be digested, I'd be happy to have an online hearing. I'm not, I'm not opposed to that. But that's the main change I have. In terms of the minutia of their rules, it just seems like they have a whole lot of discretion to hear what they want to hear and to, you know, sort of give as much due process as they say is proportional, so be it in-person hearings or a telephone hearing or any kind of cross-examination. The adjudicators have a lot of discretion about how much of that is in play. And after I have some hands-on experience, I could probably better answer that question. But right now, I just don't like the idea of being forced there as opposed to having the option of going to court. I hear you. <laughs> 
<laughs> I got my own issues with that and my own oh. tribunal that I deal with. So yeah, well, your practice is built around tribunals. <laughs> um, okay, well, let's shift gears for a minute and talk about what happened last week. The crazy, um, uh, the crazy stats that came out of the government as far as um, as far as ICBC still somehow managing to lose money. Yeah, no, I, I don't believe they're losing money. And I think, let's, yeah, let's talk about this. So the pandemic has had all sorts of wild changes across Canada. Different people and different businesses are impacted in different ways. And the one, you know, I hate to call it positive, but, but the one positive, I guess, that came out of this pandemic is a lot fewer people are being injured and killed on the roadways right now because there's a lot less volume out there. People aren't driving, and you're just seeing a lot less carnage on the roads. That's a good thing. Um, ICBC, as the monopoly insurer for British Columbia, is saving outrageous amounts of money. They've collected all of their premiums based on certain projected risks. Those risks have vanished, or at least largely vanished, and ICPC is still sitting on that money. So they said crashes are down 46% during these pandemic times, and they have a very good sense of what each crash is going to cost them statistically. So they're saving a lot of money. I think they projected something like $158 million in savings from this reduced crash rate. But interestingly, they're not offering any kind of a rebate to any of us rate-paying British Columbians out there. Now, the private insurance industry, on the other hand, is. It's reported that private companies are giving ratepayers back somewhere between 10 and 25% of those premiums. And that's just the nature of a competitive market. If you have to compete with the other insurance company and you know you're making some windfall profits in the pandemic, you can give your customers some money back to create that goodwill. But ICBC, as this monopoly insurer, isn't going down that route. Instead, they're sitting on their money. And what jumped out to me, Kyla, is they sort of pivoted their talking points as well. Mm-hmm. They, they for you know, the better part of two years, it seems, this is through the Attorney General, they've been painting this picture of crash rates are up, claims are up, payout amounts are up, and then they project that this is not sustainable. And they came up with this terrible phrase, the dumpster fire, this catchy phrase. They probably paid a lot of money to learn that phrase and to put it out into the public. They say there's a dumpster fire, and to put it out, we have to take away everybody's rights. Well, interestingly, the the rugs pulled out from under them. There is no increase of crash rates. There's a decrease in crash rates beyond anything they ever could have expected. It was 43%? And yeah, yeah, 46%, I think, is what it is. And so I... If, if, if the amount of crashes and the amount of claims were driving their concerns of their future viability, that's gone. You have to go back to the drawing board. And so besides possibly giving people refunds, if they truly were talking about taking more of people's rights away because of the crash rate statistics, then if they're putting their money where their mouth is, they need to take another look at that and and decide whether that's a way to go forward. The other thing, and, and just whenever I talk about this, I like to get this out, so I apologize to your listeners if this is redundant, but there never was a dumpster fire at ICBC. Their, their projections of losses are, are almost comical because they, they talk about their capital reserves, and they say, we lost some money, we don't have that much in our capital reserves, and so this 
corporations spiraling out of control. What they don't tell you is they're sitting on billions and billions of assets. They've got something like $16 mm -hmm. billion dollars in various assets, including real estate holdings and their investment portfolio. ICBC could lose a billion dollars a year for a generation and still be a viable and desirable company for somebody to take over. So I've never seen somebody sitting on $16 billion persuade me that they're in fact in poverty and that <laughs> rights need to be taken away. And the other thing worth remembering is that $16 billion that they're sitting on, that's ratepayer money. That was, that was built up from ratepayers over the years, and ICBC has this small uh, financial empire of theirs now. That's their designed to pay out valid claims in good times and in bad. And so the ICBC is and can be viable for many years without the government further stripping people's rights away, without going to a no-fault model, without taking people's right to go to court away, without forcing people into this tribunal. I just don't like the whole picture, but, but to me, what really jumped out at me is, okay, if crash rates are down substantially, let's revisit the premise of the government's pitch to the public of why their rights have to be taken away. It seems like that no longer exists. And I really would like to see them govern based on the realities of this pandemic right now, right? I think, I think every government out there, BC included, has to shift their priorities to getting the economy back on track, to helping small business, to moving the province in the right direction, because so many people sacrifice so much in BC to get these world-class uh, COVID-19 rates that we have world-class on the good side. And so now I think the hard part is going to come where, where the governments have to figure out how to give back to all the people that sacrificed so much. And that's not an easy task, but stripping people's rights and saying you can't go to court anymore, I don't see how that fits into that picture. Well, I thought it was really interesting the way the discussion pivoted from crash rates and, and them you know, saying, but that's not actually going to change anything because we lost $223 million in revenue that we would have got from people changing their policies and the change fees and the cancellation fees. Well, the reality is they never would have had that revenue but for the pandemic because nobody was going to be, or very few people, were going to be changing or canceling their policies. The reason that it happened, that so many people said, oh, you know, I'm, I've got to cancel my insurance because I'm not driving to work anymore, or I need to change my policy because now I need my car in storage because I lost my job. Um, you know, so that's not lost revenue. They didn't lose $223 million. They provided a service, and they didn't charge for that service. And the service probably cost them very little because it's all done inside a computer by insurance brokers who don't even work for ICBC 90% of the time. They just have a, a right to sell ICBC insurance. So, uh, I mean, that frustrated me. And the other thing that got me was, was their reference to their investments. Um, you know, well, we might lose a billion dollars in our investments. I'm sorry, how many dollars in investments, as you said, do you have if you think you're going to lose a billion? And if you have that much, can't you think strategically, just like every other person and corporation with millions or billions in investments, or even thousands in investments, like the little folk, um, and figure out what's going to get you through this difficult time and where you're going to come out on top? I, I was talking about this with Paul. He said that the people in the 2007 or 2008 uh, economic crash who stuck it out and invested wisely at that time actually did better in the long run than the people who pulled their money out before everything started to go down. 
Yeah, no, well, well, you hit the nail on the head, I think, with those observations. And, and that's right. On the one hand, hey, you guys are sitting on billions upon billions and billions, and you're crying poverty. You can't gel those two positions. And the next one was there a quick pivot there, and I think you pointed that out, which is, okay, crash rate is way down. We've been telling the public crash rate is the big driver behind these legal changes we've engineered. Now that's disappeared. Okay, let's st start talking about other kind of numbers, so investment income and uh, you know, rate payer premiums and these kinds of things. So I thought they were trying to get on the offensive right away, knowing their talking points were, were being taken away from them. But the other thing that that this pandemic made clear, you know, I was talking about this with colleagues, we're you know, doing virtual trials and virtual arbitrations and virtual discoveries. Uh, the other really amusing thing was this government was saying there's no way we can go to online insurance sales for ICBC. It's complicated. It'll take years. All this infrastructure's in place, yada, yada, yada. Well, the pandemic hits, guess what? It took them about a day to say, guess what? You could renew your insurance by telephone. <laughs> like, yeah. it took nothing, right? And the savings there, the, the brick-and-mortar insurance monopolies where you have to go in person to buy insurance as opposed to being able to do it over the telephone, I mean, the savings to ratepayers are tremendous if you factor that in. And now we know. There's no tricking the public saying you have to go into an insurance broker to buy the policy. We now know you can do it just fine over the telephone or online. So hopefully that's one of the permanent changes that, that comes into play in the aftermath of all of this. One of the things that we've been experiencing on the criminal side is, you know, prosecutors have realized we're not going to be able to reschedule everything that was adjourned and run the courts efficiently. So things have to give. And we've been getting a lot more cooperation from prosecutors and a lot more work towards resolving files. Have you been having that experience with ICBC since the pandemic hit? Yeah, you know, I'd say it's hit and miss, just depending on the people I'm dealing with. Some people have been more flexible and reasonable, and I'm finding some people are maybe a little more entrenched and happy to make things more difficult. Like, I'm not seeing a trend across the board where I could say they're being better or they're being worse. I think there's been a lot of adjustments on the ICBC side. A lot of people ended up working remotely, working from home, and I think they were dealing with the challenges of that new reality. Um, it's just been such a big shift for so many people in this industry. I think we're just all trying to work out as best as we can as we go along. But but overall, I'm not seeing any sort of like real nasty um, trend behavior from anybody on the other side of the fence. You know, most folks are being reasonable. Do you think that with things moving to online trials, that's going to save a lot of money um, in the litigation costs? Boy, you would hope so. <laughs> you, you know, I'm just thinking things like expert witnesses and the most sort of time-consuming and expensive parts of civil trials. Maybe you have a doctor from Vancouver who's retained as an expert, so they have to fly out to Victoria and they have to testify in person. And their testimonies may be two hours, but all of a sudden now between travel and hotel, you're looking at two days of time. And litigants pay you know, for things like that, be it, be it the plaintiff or the defendant, the winner or loser ends up... Uh, Putting the bill on our on our loser pay system in BC Supreme Court, and I think I think the court will probably be more comfortable with aspects of the trial being run remotely. Not everybody has to show up to the courtroom and patiently wait their turn to testify. I think you could schedule um, a lot of accommodations, and everybody being forced in this new you know reality in this crash course sort of a way. I think 
a lot of people that were reluctant to, or, or, or even outright closed-minded to it, are realizing it's not so bad. And it's, yeah, I think there's going to be some permanent changes. I guess is is the short answer, but we'll have to see how that shakes out. What we do know, I think, has become clear from our discussion with you is that none of those permanent changes are going to inspire the government to walk back the elimination of people's rights when it comes to dealing with ICBC. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I don't have any great confidence that, that they will. I'm, I'm always, there's at least a spark of hope that, that the government will stop trying to strip people's rights and uh, leave them intact and realize that $16 billion of assets is plenty of money to pay for the victims of car crashes when, when you know, their livelihoods are taken away and their lives are changed. Uh, but I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. it. All indications seem they're still sort of blazing ahead with their, with their tort reform agenda, but maybe cooler heads will prevail before the legislature goes back in session. One can only hope. Well, any final thoughts or words of wisdom, Eric, to share with our listeners? Boy, I think we've canvassed it all, Kyle. <laughs> How can people contact you if they have an ICBC claim and they need to hire you or they're so, lost and confused? Yeah, so so my firm website is mckisaacandcompany.com. Probably the easiest way to track me down is on my blog, bcinjurylaw.com, with a hyphen between every word. And if you if you find my blog there, there's a quick link where you could contact me. That'll send me a direct email. There's no intermediaries for that. So uh, feel free to track me down or by phone at the office, 250-381-5353. Perfect. Well, thank you again for joining us on the Driving Law Podcast. It's always a pleasure to have you. And like I said, you're our most popular guest. So. <laughs> yeah, Kyla, thanks so much. Okay, thank you again, Eric, for joining us on the podcast. And before I let everybody go, I would be remiss if we didn't have a Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. And this one is... Perhaps could it take the title for our grossest ridiculous driver of the week? Um, this is taking place in Georgia at a Taco Bell drive-through. And if you ever want hilarious, ridiculous stories about bad drivers or drivers doing bad things, uh, check out the Google News results for drive-through and Florida, for example, and you will find no shortage of some hilarious and often frightening uh, drive-through incidents. But this one really, really took the cake, uh, shall we say. So this happened on May 14th. Uh, a woman pulls up to a Taco Bell um, at the drive-through and... I guess there was some type of confrontation, and who knows what it was about. It was probably, like, Taco Bell didn't have the right kind of tacos or the right kind of sauce. Usually something stupid like that. Um, but this woman, in order to deal with her dispute, rather than respond reasonably, she took a plastic bottle that was in her car and sprayed a liquid from the plastic bottle into the drive-through window uh, and tried to spray the people working at the drive-through window before then ultimately throwing the bottle into the window. 
Now, okay, maybe a water fight wouldn't be that interesting and that ridiculous enough to get featured on this portion of the podcast, but the police determined after their investigation that the contents of the bottle was urine and feces. So that's a really shitty thing to do, if you pardon my pun. Um, apparently the restaurant had to close for two hours so that employees could sanitize the premises and just, I mean, I feel for those employees because they never did anything to warrant that other than their jobs. And then they had to clean up this woman's piss and shit. That's just unacceptable. Um, she fled in her vehicle uh, and uh, hasn't, uh, to my knowledge, been arrested. Uh, they have her on surveillance video. They've released photos from the surveillance videos just showing the woman um, and depicting her. And they have no idea, they say, no idea why she's driving around with her, uh, with her bottle of excrement <laughs> in her car. So, I mean, if that doesn't qualify you as being our ridiculous driver of the week, then no amount of ridiculousness is going to get there. So that is our podcast. Sorry for the shitty way to end the week, but I thought people might get a little bit of a laugh out of that, or at least marvel at the absurdity of the situation and leave you with more questions than answers. Speaking of which, if you need answers about any legal issues that are plaguing you or any driving law-related issues, give us a call at Acumen Law Corporation 604-685-8889 or find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. 